You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. This is episode number 207. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis NewsHour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today, we're talking about Mike Tyson wants to knock you out. The fentanyl-laced cannabis in Connecticut that didn't really happen. New York Governor Hochul and her subpoena by MedMen. A breakdown of Tennessee's cannabis law proposals. Rockstar energy drinks to get hemped up. Wisconsin has revenue envy. What companies need to know before entering the metaverse? Kern County Sheriff's Department has a staffing problem and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Co-moderating with me today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? I'm sure it's spicy. <laughs> Let's get this party started, right? So my story is coming out of the New York Post. Uh, cannabis retailer to seek subpoena of Hotel's office over approval of pot firm sale. Now, it looks like the cannabis industry's very own WeWork is looking to refill the spice cabinet in their communal kitchen. That's right. According to the New York Post, state Supreme Court records revealed Mad Men's, excuse me, Med Men's requesting a judge subpoena records from Kathy uh, Hochul's office for possible evidence her team forced the company to sell its New York operations as a favor to political contributors. As Brandon Dorsky reported last week, Med Men's accusing the Hochul uh, administration of improper influence to help Ascend Wellness close a $75 million deal buying majority of MedMen's New York retail operations. Though MedMen agreed to offload the assets over a year ago, the lawsuit claims the governor's office illegally influenced Office of Cannabis Management regulators and the Cannabis Control Board to approve the deal after nearly a year of delays. And curiously, just days after an Ascend executive attended a fundraiser for her reelection campaign. Should the deal have expired January 1st, MedMen would have benefited greatly by holding on the, onto the depressed assets. Valuations would have sharply risen over the last few months due to Governor Hochul's retail fast-tracking initiative. MedMen's clearly salty, and they want to see all existing communications between the governor's office and the, and the CCB and Ascend's team. Per the article, the request to Judge Margaret Pui Yi Chan is... To subpoena the governor's office for any records pertaining to a December 8th hotel fundraiser targeted to the cannabis industry. MedMen wants to see who attended and contributed, according to Quinn Manual partner Alex Spiros, who represents the firm. I want to also note that the post may be incorrectly spelled MedMen as Mad Men twice in this article. MedMen's lawsuit states, quote, 
a clear influence of, excuse me, a clear inference of improper influence by Ascend on the state approval process, alleging Ascend President Andrew Brown attended the fundraiser and CEO Abner Curtin met with Hochul's team two days after. A spokesman for Furistein Kulik, the law firm who organized the fundraiser, said Ascend's Brown was not at the event. However, the Post did find through the New York State Board of Elections, Ascend made three contributions to Friends of Kathy Hochul. On October 28th, totaling $15,000. About that. Uh, Hochul's office is fiercely denying the lawsuit claims and said through a spokeswoman to the Post, these allegations are full of falsehoods. None of the governor's senior team members named here have ever met with these individuals. Notice that she did not say that nobody on the team ever met with the individual. She just said senior people did not meet with those individuals. So um, I'm just over here eating popcorn and sipping my infused green tea with added spice for extended COVID protection as details on this story continue to unfurl. This is Rico Lamite, recipient of Eater Magazine's 2021 Dope Dad with the Most Advanced Palette Award, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this one. <laughs> way, to plug, way to plug your awards, Rico. Awesome. Um Hey, Brandon, I was wondering, when is Lionsgate? Does Lionsgate have an IP lawsuit against MedMen? I hate their name. I really do. Why did they come so close to being Mad Men? I don't think there's any lawsuit there. Um, That would be, and I I actually think uh, from a trademark standpoint, MedMen's probably acquired distinctiveness at this point. So I don't even think a trademark lawsuit would be successful okay what do you think about this lawsuit i think that you know this lawsuit is um i mean this uh, this subpoena could create some problems we'll see we'll see what is uncovered when uh, you know when the information is revealed um but you know money talks and this deal has been consummated even if they're were some dirty deeds in the background, uh, it wouldn't shock me if Ascend ends up with this, with this license, you know? Man, um, <laughs> follow the money. Just follow the money. Receipts. We saw, we saw plenty of this shit going down out here in Los Angeles over the last few years. There's a legaliz- legalization, um, unrolled uh, un, un, unraveled out here in california but um there weren't really uh, many big players involved like men men at the time so uh, this one's going to be on um a lot of uh front pages and it'll be interesting to see how it uh unfolds with one of these when these text messages <laughs> between the parties uh, get publicized all right should we move on to liz i think we should she is known for bringing the data and not the drama. And um, one of our uh, co-producers out here on the show, co-hosts on the show uh, multiple times a week, one of my favorite people out of Santa Barbara, California. Up next is Liz Rogan. What you got for us this morning, Liz? Good morning. Thank you, Rico. Happy Groundhog Day, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My story comes from NewJersey.com by Suzette Palmley. I'm sorry, Parmley. The headline reads, New Jersey legal weed growers brace for layoffs, destroying product if custom, I'm sorry, consumer market doesn't open soon. So the largest cultivators in New Jersey are exceptionally eager for the adult market to open. They are saying they may have to take drastic measures such as destroying product and laying off employees if the market doesn't open soon. Like all agricultural products, cannabis has a shelf life and after six months, often the quality and value are lost. So what is the holdup here? The Cannabis Regulatory Commission was created by the state to oversee the nascent cannabis industry and says some of the companies demanding to open have yet to comply with the stipulations in the law. Last week, Jeff Brown, who is the CRC's executive director, said the law has been in place since February 22, 2021. It has clearly noted that alternative treatment centers, which is what they call uh, dispensaries there, need three things. Uh, local approval, relevant necessary supply to be able to place and operational capacity to continue to expand access. 
So Governor Phil Murphy's law signed last year said the market could open six months after the commission adopted rules, which so they did that on August 19th, which would make mid-February 2022 a self-imposed deadline to open. The law also said the commission is required to give 30 days notice before sales commence. Meeting both deadlines at this time looks grim. Murphy, who made legalizing adult cannabis as a centerpiece of his 2017 run, said that missing the 22nd, February's 22nd deadline wouldn't be the end of the world. I'd rather get it right than fast, Murphy said, as we at the SOC News Hour reported earlier this week. He said the CRC is doing a great job. They want to do a job that's different and better than any other state, in particular as it re- relates to addressing inequalities. He said there's an effort to pressure us to move forward in a way that is not compliant with the law, and this is not going to happen. Well, the New Jersey Cannabis Trade Association members have been pressuring the state to allow them to sell. James Levantis, who is of Verano, New Jersey, said cultivation, I'm sorry, they have cultivation processing in three stores, said we may have to start destroying product and we may have to start potentially letting people go. It looks very stark right now. The New Jersey uh, Trade Cannabis Trade Association members include 10 current and future um, medical cannabis license holders, including the state's largest grower and seller, Cureleaf, who has not yet submitted proof that any of the communities will permit adult use sales. At the January 27th meeting, Brown said that eight of the 12 licensed growers and sellers have applied to serve the adult market, as well as the medical program. And he says, as of the last review, uh, that none of the applications were complete. Some don't have permission yet to sell recreational from the host uh, locality. Some have not shown that they have enough product to satisfy patients' needs. And they also need to show a commitment to operations that reflects uh, social equity and safety, he said. Well, Patrick Johnson, who's the regional president for uh, Cureleaf in the Northeast, said their facility is overflowing, saying they had obviously prepared and did pretty aggressive hiring to make sure they were ready for February 22nd, 2022. And if they can't start selling before springtime, they're going to have to start disposing of this older cannabis. The chief sponsor of the legislation to open the adult use market, who is Democratic President Nicholas Scutari, said the process needs to move faster. The people of New Jersey have spoken by a two-to-one margin. They approved legal cannabis sales in New Jersey. It's been over a year since that vote took place and we need to move forward. The legislature in this effort is prepared to help in any way we can. So this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I would love to hear if anyone has any insight or feedback on this story. First of all, they knew the risk that they were taking and gearing up, you know. And second of all, isn't older cannabis rich in CBN or something like that that could be made into some pretty cool sleep products? And third of all, interstate commerce. Older products should just be used as tinder for fires. <laughs> you think that of outdoor cannabis too, Jason. So I know because it goes Jason, bad. Do, Jason, do you have a tinder profile? Yes, it's in my fireplace and it's burning hot. It's spicy. It's really interesting how local control is just this big problem. It seems like we've experienced that in California. Um, yesterday I'd reported how in South Dakota they were over, kind of overthrowing local control and making them kind of have to have it. So it's interesting to see because I think this has been a big issue that's been uh, a big pimple in the road of progress uh, for a long time now. Delays, delays, delays. Now, people don't understand, man. Um, this shit takes time, and a lot of people that get in early and you don't have deep pockets, you're not going to be there when it when, when stuff actually goes through. It's just the just the way it goes. So is Tom Delay really the re, really uh, the one running New Jersey, Rico? Is Tom Delay ever on time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say the same is true in California. I mean, the fact is. We all have to, you know, what Rico said about deep pockets is true here. It's like if you're not bracing for a long-term storm, you're going to lose. And we also have to destroy product here when it fails uh, compliance, full testing, uh, you know, it, 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 things that are oh, should have two-year compliance uh, testing anywhere else. We only have a year. And if the batch is too small, it's too expensive to test. And we end up throwing away so much stuff, so much waste and that just eventually affects our bottom line. So I'm sympathetic to this. Yes, indeed. Now, we were at the uh, end of the line for that story. Thank you so much, Liz, for that one. Definitely something we have to work, uh, watch out for. And um, good luck to everybody out in New Jersey. So up next, 
He's the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and known for smoking the greatest weed in the world while staying hydrated by sipping on desalinated liberal tears from non-BPA-free plastic bottles. Up next, we got the State of Cannabis in, uh, News Hour's very own Kaiser Brose, Jason Beck. What you got for us this morning, my man? Oh, good morning, Rico. Today, my story comes out of Tennessee, and where all I want to do is ha- have Susan play a soundbite of Arrested Developments, Tennessee. Tennessee, where breaking down the Tennessee's legislature on cannabis proposals alongside redistricting one of the hottest topics in the Tennessee legislature right now is cannabis. In fact, there has been a record amount of cannabis related legislation filed this year, according to industry lobbyists. The legislation runs the full spectrum. For instance, Representative Darren uh, Jernigan, Democrat from Old Hickory, has proposed limited expansion to Tennessee's existing medical cannabis program, while Representative Bob Freeman, Democrat of Nashville, is ready to rip the Band-Aid off the cannabis conversation via full legalization for both medical and adult use purposes. But it's not just super super minority Democrats. Some Republicans are pushing proposals of their own, as they have in recent years, to um, to, lim- to limited effect. Representative Chris Hurt, from uh, Republican from Halls, filed a bill that seeks to legitimize the cannabis industry by taxing and regulating psychotropic hemp-derived cannabinoids like Delta-8 that contain more than 0.1% THC. And so there is one, two, three bills that has been introduced in Tennessee. The first one is House Joint Resolution 742. The most recent piece of cannabis-related legislation was filed Monday by Representative Jason Powell, Democrat from Nashville. Powell's proposed constitutional amendment would legalize the sale of medical cannabis in Tennessee. As it stands, Tennessee's medical cannabis program allows patients with fewer than a dozen qualifying conditions to possess cannabis products. It does not allow the cultivation sale or purchase of medical cannabis in the state. His proposal would create a 4% tax on the sale of medical cannabis. House Bill 1968. Freeman collaborated with Tennessee Growers Coalition, HB 1968, also called the Free All Cannabis in Tennessee, aka FACT Act. The bill would legalize the cultivation, manufacturing, transportation, and sale of cannabis for both medical and adult use purposes. It would restrict the sale um, and use of the products to individuals 21 and older. Pediatric use is allowed under proposal um, if authorized by a physician. However, the bill does define a 10% statewide excise tax on retail sales. It also allows counties and local municipalities to tack on additional sales tax up to 5% on top of the state tax. And last but not least, we have House Bill 1690. Hertz bill seeks to regulate the existing cannabis industry, specifically psychotropic hemp-derived cannabinoids, which include products that have more than 0.1% THC. Current federal regulations limit THC to 0.3%. This includes products containing the newly popular Delta-8, a.k.a. Delta-8, but not pure CBD products, which do not contain THC. His bill would, his bill would create licensing requirements for retailers and wholesalers of psychotropic hemp-derived cannabinoids, establish a 6.6% excise tax on the wholesale of hemp-derived cannabinoids, and limit sales of psychotropic hemp-derived products like Delta-8 to those 21 and older. Well, there's a lot of uh, talk going on in Tennessee, apparently, And I just keep on having here in my head to Tennessee. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Jason, what did you say the tax was on the medical cannabis in Tennessee? Well, there's there's three different bills and they each propose a different different amount of excise tax. One of them is a 4% excise tax. The other one is a 10% excise tax and then allows local municipalities to add on up to 5% uh, if, if they choose. And the other one, uh, let's see. And that was, all, that was all for medical? It's all medical um, and adult use. Okay, so in Tennessee, uh, sales of medical services are exempt from sales tax. So why is it that cannabis is not? That's not Ex- cool. Exactly. Well, that's a, that's a question. So, that's a question for the regulators. I'm just here to report on the news. <laughs> so, Jason, let me get this right. So, the, this bill that they're introducing, it's medical and adult use rolling out at the same time. There's, only there's three different bills that have been introduced. Three different ones. Okay. 
And two of them, uh, I believe, involve adult-use cannabis. One of them uh, only involves the sale of all cannabinoids, including hemp. Yeah. Okay. Maggie's up from the audience. Maggie, did you want to weigh in? I grew up there, and I was raised to believe that I was allergic to weed. So Tennessee has a long fucking way to go. Period. The end. Come on, Maggie. I know you want to sing Tennessee with me. <laughs> so listen. Take so, me to so a listen, better place. This is, this is where it's time for people. If you're in Tennessee, if you know folks, if you're in the audience, get engaged. Because if you have people there, there there's model policy to help lawmakers. You're asking lawmakers to write policy on issues that they have no freaking. And this is where we, I mean, literally, if we want to save our industry and make sure it's not all fucked up from the beginning, we can we can pull policy, even if it's from like a like a Virginia, from a Southern Belt, you know, a Bible Belt state or what have you. Um, but normally the the you start with a medical program and you proliferate over to adult use. But you give those folks some some access to this plant from a medical perspective, and no taxes. Preach it, Roz. Yeah, I love that. There needs to be a cannabis church in Tennessee, and that would do that would do very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard the, I heard the church Bring out music. the gemstones. Mrs. Susan, I heard the church music in the background. I thought I was going I was about to hit the pulpit. <laughs> hey, hey Maggie, yeah, hey Maggie, that church is that where everybody rolls their joints with Bible paper? They sell their books back to they sell their Christian science books back to the school so they can buy weed. <laughs> That's great. So we're at the end of the road for that story. So up next. He's known and respected as an outspoken defender of the culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. Our next correspondent can teach us all a thing or two about going from legacy to legal without losing your soul in the process. Co-founder and president of Poppin' Barkley and hands down one of my favorite OGs in the game. Up next is Guy Rocord. What you got for us this morning, my brother? Thanks, Rico. Good morning. And good morning, Susan. Good morning, team. Uh, today, my uh, article comes from MJ Biz Daily. And it's a fun one. I think it's called. It's entitled "What Cannabis Companies Should Consider Before Entering the Metaverse." So this is a great piece on the metaverse in general, but specifically as it relates to cannabis. So there's already some first movers cited in there as Candy Girl, the first cannabis company to advertise on Decentraland. They also have a plot of land in Decentraland where you can go in and visit their virtual, sounds like a dispensary, I mean, but in their Decentraland plot, you can uh, go to their website, you can go to their social media site. Um, But this article also does bring out some words of caution. Before we rush into this new metaverse or Web 3.0, we should understand some of the pitfalls. First of all, these regulations are, uh, you know, varying from website to website. Meaning, if you go on Sandbox, Decentralize, or CryptoVoxel, or create your own metaverse, the terms and conditions will apply. And so, similar to many of the things we do on the internet, check your terms and conditions because many of the terms and conditions clearly state that if you are promoting illegal activity or assisting in an unlawful act that you might be held liable. And as we know, with cannabis being federally prohibited and can- and the metaverse technically being a national or being not necessarily tied to a state, you should definitely be aware of the regulations before you start to go too big in the metaverse. However, the metaverse does pose some good things for cannabis in that I believe like most uh, internet-based things. It is a place where folks can get together and share their truth. A lot of other big companies are starting to stake their claim in this metaverse. Ever since I think Facebook came out and started trying to change their name to Meta, we've all become a little bit more aware. But big companies like Microsoft, Nike, Apple have all started to basically purchase plots or start their own metaverse where folks can come in. And what I've started to gather, uh, you know, as a 50-year-old trying to put my head around this new technology is that essentially the metaverse is a 3D website, where as opposed to going to like, let's say you're a 2D website and looking through 2D images, now you can walk into a virtual reality and purchase and engage and socialize. So I don't know what the future holds for the metaverse and cannabis. I hope it's a place that we can have really clear information and not another source of misinformation. Hopefully it's a place where we can start to transact nationally before these regs happen. But right now, very much it's in in its infancy, um, but worth keeping an eye on. Uh, This is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. 
Guy, did you call it Spacebook? Haha, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> if they freaking would let us advertise in cannabis, I'd be happy to partner with them. But right now, between them, Instagram, Google, and all the people that still hate cannabis and tie our hands advertising-wise, zero sympathy. I mean, um, a lot of a lot of laws are going to have to change when Web three uh, when Web three really gets uh, up and going with everybody because it's uncharted territory. People are buying real estate in there for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, people are like really treating it like it is reality, um, but there's no rules, there's no jurisdiction in there. So do it. It's the fuck truly you want. free. It's truly and a free space, fun- Rico. The funny thing is, it, it this is all a flex to me, like these communities that build up, it's like, why would I want to be in a community when I could literally start my own land? Like, I don't have to join Sandbox or Decentralized. I could just start to create my own uh, metaverse. If I had the horsepower, I could create my own Bitcoins. But yet we want to be part of these clubs and these kind of things. And I, I do feel like a lot of the new ones, especially these new NFTs, are just another form of elitism, another way for people to stack wealth with their wealthy cronies and move it around. But it still cuts most of us out. Like, it, it's not, it's still not a fair game from what I can tell. I still don't understand what, I, I kind of get Web 3.0, but not really. I, I, I didn't know that uh, the metaverse was going to be like a 3D website, I thought it was going to be more uh, like every, like the internet, like everybody's there, only in a different. I mean, the the metaverse is is everything and anything you want it to be, and nothing that you don't. Yeah, huh. that, that's right, Susan. I think it, it it's like I, I think we were thinking of like the metaverse. You know, how some people think Facebook is the internet, and they get all their media through Facebook. Well, we can't allow that to happen. So when you think about decentralized or sandbox. It's just like, yeah, it's a portal and you could access other portals through it. But that doesn't mean you can start literally your own metaverse, just like a Web page. And so while they are all kind of connected like the Internet is, they all also have their own landing sites that can be robust. And like Facebook could trap you in there. And I know so many older people that think Facebook is the Internet and they use Facebook as a browser and then wonder why they have their heads filled so much with misinformation. Man, it's this tangled, tangled web. We, we've got Nick Bradley up from the audience. Nick, we're at time on this, but if you've uh, got something, 10 seconds. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of echo what Guy was saying. It's it, With the attack that the communication industry has on cannabis companies right now and um, shutting down text messaging campaigns and whatnot, it's going to be really interesting to see how the metaverse um, regulates or, or does not regulate um, cannabis advertising. So. It'll be interesting indeed. Or when we'll see our very first um, hate crime committed in the metaverse. I don't, I don't even know. So Who's going to prosecute that, Rico? Exactly. I think Tom DeLay will. So up, <laughs> up next, this <laughs> Florida-based entrepreneur <laughs> and Bows lady runs the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. They just had a great uh, story come out recently too, and is the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. She's coming to the stage and bringing us some heat. It's Roz McCarthy. What you got for us this morning? Good morning, everybody. Happy Black History Month again. And um, I'm coming to you guys. Yesterday, I had a, a story on hemp and hemp seeds. And guess what? Today, PepsiCo to launch, hold on one second, to launch hemp seed infused drink under Rockstar Energy. So the key points, PepsiCo latest drink from Rockstar Energy is infused with hemp seed. The company wants to draw in younger female consumers to the energy drink category. Hemp seed has little to no CBD, and food and beverages infused with it don't have the same legal restrictions as those made with the cannabis compound. PepsiCo's latest drink from Rockstar Energy wants to help consumers chill out. Infused with hemp seed oil, spearmint, lemon balm, and only... I'm sorry, in only about 80 milligrams of of caffeine, Pepsi is hoping to attract younger female consumers with the drink. Men between the ages of 18 and 35 years consume the most energy drinks, according to the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. It's a combination... Sorry. It's a combination of herbals that can help us to relax but not sleep, says Fabiola Torres, PepsiCo general manager and chief marketing officer of his energy business. 
Other iterations of Rockstar Drink contains anywhere from 160 milligrams to 300 milligrams of caffeine. Rockstar Unplug will be available in slimmer 12-ounce cans in three flavors, blueberry, passion fruit, and raspberry cucumber. Beginning Tuesday, the price point per can, $1.99. This isn't Rockstar's first foray into hemp. In April, the brand launched Rockstar Energy plus hemp in Germany. And PepsiCo CEO Ramon Lagorta told analysts that the month Germany, that the German test was specific to that country, which has a, a sizable hemp market. <clears throat> Pardon me. While many consumers may think of hemp seed as synonymous with CBD, there are some differences. Both come from hemp plants, but hemp seed has little to no CBD. It also has much less dramatic effects when consumed. It's currently illegal for com- illegal for companies to sell CBD-infused food and beverages across state lines, keeping large companies and players like Pepsi and its rival Coca-Cola out of the fray. A number of small players with less to lose have introduced their own CBD drinks, but the category remains tiny. Only 1.8% of Americans purchased a CBD drink in the last three months of 2021. Hemp seed-infused food and drinks have no such ban in the U.S., but they have failed to catch on like in Germany. This is a new territory, says Torres. Shares of Pepsi have climbed 26% over the last 12 months, giving it a market value of $239 billion. So again, we're having this conversation about integrating hemp seed. I don't know what the value, um, um, maybe it's just a different way to consume your hemp seed versus having it on top of your cereal or your fruit. But I'm here for it. Um, I just, um, I don't know where this is going to go. This is Roz McCarthy coming to you from the State of Cannabis News Hour. Somebody weigh in. Tell me what you think. I think that Rockstar needs to advertise on the show. I agree. No one's gonna, no one's gonna buy this crap. You don't think so? Yeah, they will. It's, it's marketing. It's, it's marketing. They can say hemp on it, and a ton of people are like, "Oh yeah, yeah. it's Pepsi. It's a trusted source." Yes, of they food. are. Yes, they are. I agree. Rico's right, but I don't understand how you uh, relax and chill out with all that caffeine at the same time. Yeah, they're, 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 well, I think they speedball. Yeah, I think, didn't they say, I think the article means they're, they're stripping out the caffeine, less caffeine and more of the hemp seed. I don't know. Um, it's it's like, it's it's a dichotomy. You got the hemp seed, which is natural, with the caffeine, which is like a, you know, um, you know, that type of kind of, you know, stimulant in our body. I don't know if those two things work together. That's the, It's like that, that caffeinated water that never went anywhere. It's like you're hydrating, <laughs> but the caffeine is dehydrating you. So yeah, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> you, what are we doing? You don't, you don't know to be, if you don't know to be healthy or be crazy and jump yeah. on the walls all day long. So I, I mean, want it all. I want uh, it all. We've got but, Nicole- but Rico is right. It, PepsiCo has put money behind this. They got, they, they have their target audience. Um, Torres, they've mentioned her in the article. I'm going to reach out to her, but I think they should definitely um, advertise with um, with the News Hour and uh, let's watch what happens. But people are going to buy it. Watch. Yeah, they are. Nicole, we've got Nicole Buffong up from the audience. We're at time, so uh, ten seconds. You are muted. I would like to plug uh, Twist to Access. It is a CBD-infused beverage. It is a Black-owned female company. Uh, They include uh, plenty of other uh, vitamin-packed ingredients. So if you're looking for an actual chill drink that is good for you, um, that is Black-owned, twisttoaccess.com. Please follow them and um, get you a box of their wonderful drinks. Okay. We we normally don't allow plugs uh, on the show, but in this case... That's cool. All right. We're going to relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. She's the founder and CEO of It's Weed. Related, a U.S. Army vet and social equity and community outreach specialist, our newest contributor to the team, Jaja Simone Brown. What you got for us this morning, Jaja? Hello. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Rico. (laughs) I'm over here trying to laugh and read at the same time. Okay, so this morning, my story is from Yahoo Finance, and it's coming out of Michigan. 
So we got Mike Tyson's premium cannabis brand launches its Michigan with exclusive cultivation partners, Common Citizen. So Mike Tyson now has a Tyson 2.0 brand, and that brand is going to be available in Michigan, California, Colorado, Nevada, and Massachusetts. And they'll be having two strains available in Michigan coming to market. And it's the Tyson's Knockout OG and the punt, the pound for pound cake. Okay, so Mike Tyson, he's a legendary boxer and an entrepreneur. And he has his two cannabis brands out there in Tyson's Ranch. And so today he announced his new brand with exclusive partnership with Common Citizen, and they are the largest fully integrated cannabis operator. Common Citizen produces safe and high quality cannabis products for patients and adult use consumers across Michigan. So Mike Tyson has tested out his brands and he's approved this Tyson 2.0, and he's also concerned with putting out high quality cannabis. And so Mike Tyson said before he found cannabis, he was a different person and that the plant had changed his life for the better. And he has made it his mission to share his gift with fans there in Michigan and across the nations. So I'm excited for Mike Tyson and his brands. I'm from Brooklyn like Mike Tyson is. So just knowing that I have somebody from my hometown that's an advocate for cannabis and Putting out quality cannabis is very important for me. Um, Common Citizen said that they are excited to partner with the living legend like Mike Tyson. And he also shares the same passion for promoting the benefits of providing cannabis. And the history of partnerships embodies cannabis for humanity and serves the unique individual needs of all the consumers. So I'm with them when they're honoring Mike Tyson and what he's doing. So what do you guys think about Mike Tyson's cannabis and have you tried it? And what do you think about these exclusive partnerships? I want to first say that this was a press release, and uh, we we did talk about doing it because it's an important story, but it is a press release, and I'm really glad that Mike Tyson is a different person. That's super awesome, but your strain names are Knockout OG and Pound for Pound Cake. You know, this is a beautiful flower. And I, 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 I don't understand why he would choose those names. Uh, you know, it was supposed to get t- knocked out. Way to keep the stigma Look, alive, Mike. Totally. Are those Indian strains of supposing? And listen, I already have issues with, like, you know, where you have, um, you know, celebrity-driven brands that are supposed to speak to, like, they're supposed to be, to be the end-all, be-all of, especially Black-owned brands that are on the shelf. And it's not. You know, he has a very specific audience, a very specific consumer that's wants to his but product Roz, or what have you. But, 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 but Roz, like, I, in the first press release that they had when they were first releasing the Tyson 2.0, he yeah. said that um, um, a lot of the benefits were going to be going to mental health. <laughs> Mental health initiative. So, hey, I, I just, for, for, for me, I, I'm excited to see this brand, but I just want to see the warning label on the package say, warning, this could get you so high, you may bite someone's ear off. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, listen, like, I, listen we, were at, we were at MJ Biz, and Mike Tyson came onto the floor, and he was on the floor smoking, taking pictures. I mean, he's very much the advocate. He's very, he doesn't apologize. And I'm okay with that. If you know who you are, you know your brand, you're okay with it. That's what you do, what have you, but it's not the end all be all. And also there's, it's very specifically who his consumer, who's going to buy his brand. But was this, was this before or after his, uh, his, his security team beat down? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys didn't see that video, oh my God, was that his security team that did that? Oh my gosh! So that was uh, yeah. There's a video out there um, if you want to see it of uh, a beatdown on the MJ BizCon floor this past um, in 2021. It's it crazy. 
We need to keep smoking I, I, the news. I did not, I did not that, was, that, was, that was not Tyson Security. That was a whole other group. That was a whole other conversation. Okay. All right. I think it was, yeah, yeah, think it was an audition. Was, yeah. It was an audition. Yeah, and it was, it was embarrassing. <laughs> like, from the black folks and from the black community, we was like, I'm glad it wasn't one of us because it was embarrassing. So, anyway. Yes, just, anyway. So, we're, we're out of time uh, for that story. So, coming up next, she's a pot-loving PhD pushing for common-sense cannabis policy for everyday people and an outside-the-box activist who remains optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. You know, we have next is Manika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning, Manika? Good morning, Rico. Good morning, team. I have some enforcement news out of Oregon. Uh, my story comes to you from the Associated Press, and seven years after Oregon voters legalized the regulated production and use of recreational cannabis. The state legislature is now considering measures to crack down on an explosion of illegal pot farms. Oregon's five-week legislative short session began on Tuesday, and bills have to cross the finish line by early March. The Rogue Area Drug Enforcement, a.k.a. RAID, seized 52 tons of illegal cannabis last year in southern Oregon alone. And more pot is being seized than in previous years, says Grants Pass Police Department detective and a member of the raid team in an email. According to the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission, many growers claim to be legal hemp farmers but instead cultivate plants with higher THC levels. The OLCC spokesperson said in an interview that folks are using hemp as a cover. Our SOC team has reported on numerous occasions about the crisis in Southern Oregon. And in the fall, we told you about how the Oregon Health Authority and the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission recently reported that nearly 50% of registered hemp farms inspected in the state are illegally growing cannabis. And in November, Oregon State Police troopers seized 500,000 pounds of processed cannabis in a single bus in Southern Oregon. Even those who have made their careers in drug enforcement have joined Southern Oregon's illicit cannabis market. Peter Michael Shepard, a former narcotics detective and active reserve officer at that time, was arrested after a drug task force found about 1,200 illegal cannabis plants growing on his property in Southern Oregon. We reported that story uh, during the winter holidays. So now, under a bill sponsored by uh, two Republicans in the Oregon State Legislature, a building or other premises used for unlawful growing or handling of hemp could be seized and sold to pay all fines and costs. If you want to read more on this, look up SB 1587. Another bill would authorize Oregon's Department of Agriculture to refuse to issue industrial hemp grower licenses based on supply and demand for the product. That one is SB 1564. SB 1541 would direct Oregon State Police to establish a unit to assist overwhelmed county sheriff's offices in enforcement against unlawful cultivation and distribution operations. Law enforcement would be getting funds from the Oregon marijuana account. The state police would ensure that every county's county sheriff's office receives at least half a million annually for illegal cannabis enforcement, with more resources going to sheriffs who demonstrate a greater need. Not all these bills will make it through, but there has been a lot of concern about the illegal farms in Southern Oregon, and proposals have even been made to send in the Oregon National Guard. As I was reading this article, I was thinking of Nicole West's story yesterday about California's proposed bill to hand out felonies to anyone growing more than six plants. That bill that she talked about would strike a maximum $100 fine and replace it with a felony violation instead. When most operators are not part of a legal program, is the appropriate solution carrots or is it sticks? Legal programs are failing to bring operators into their frameworks, and now enforcement and criminal penalties, i.e. war on drugs tools, are back on the rise in states that supposedly ended the war on drugs. What do you think? Do you think all solutions have been exhausted and now we're back to policing? This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I would love to hear what my fellow correspondents and audience members have to say. I think it's really I'm interesting. Put a dollar on. amount on the uh, on on the amount seized. Sorry, right. say that again, please. Did they put a dollar amount on um, the the seized cannabis? Oh, for one of them, I mean these these numbers are kind of crazy. I think it was five hundred million for the half a million pounds. So you, a lot of these estimates the <laughs> are, are not what we would estimate who are in the industry. You know the numbers, Chris. It's $25 a gram. 
<laughs> I think it's interesting to see what's going on here. Um, California and Oregon seeming to roll back uh, their open rights to cannabis producers uh, out there. And um, it'll be interesting to see because we are in uh, the middle of a big election year, too. But it also is pretty striking that if these legacy providers and people are still trying to grow cannabis outside their regulatory environment and have avenues for that, it means we're not providing enough safe access. That's what regulators should be taking away from this. Like nobody grows cannabis if they can't sell it. That means somebody's buying it. That means somebody doesn't have safe access. That means your taxes at your dispensary are either too high or you don't have enough dispensaries. That is the only answer. Putting money into enforcement, I think we did that for the last 50 years and it didn't work. Well, and now they're... Amen. Open up the markets. Come on, just open them up. Well, the, the money for these programs is at least in part coming from the taxes, which is the other, you know, crazy piece. It's just this cycle. Thanks, Guy. That was um, that was a great comment. I think some municipalities' reaction to not seeing uh, as much tax dollars as they thought is is uh, this. Yes, indeed. I think we're at the end of the. Um end of time uh, for that story. Thank you so much. It's excellent, excellent, excellent response, Guy, over there. So up next, he's a former reader of Miranda Rights and current reader of Canna News. That's right. This fellow dope dad and former cops, a cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions, and our go-to guy on law enforcement stories from an insider's perspective. Uh, up next to the stage is Chris Eggers. What you got for us this morning, my man? Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for letting me uh, tag along on this beautiful Wednesday morning. My article today comes out of the Daily Independent, and the headline reads, Sheriff Donnie Youngblood, quote, we don't hold people in California accountable for their actions. In a two-part story, which first printed Wednesday, January 26th, Sheriff Donnie Youngblood was guest speaker for the Ridge Crest Republican Women Federate meeting held January 21st at Casey's Barbecue. In part one of the story, Youngblood discussed staffing problems as well as problems the Kern County Sheriff's Office has been dealing with since the pandemic. In continuing with his discussion about the difficulties of hiring new deputies for the department, Youngblood said that if he should receive a green light to hire deputies from Kern County Board of Supervisors, it will take one and a half years before the deputies are ready to be added to the team. What compounds the problem is that we used to get a thousand applicants to those jobs, not anymore. One of the difficult tasks the department faces when hiring new recruits is defining someone who doesn't use drugs or has never used drugs, including medical marijuana. Said Youngblood, if it has been one year or less since you use marijuana, you are not eligible to be hired. Can you imagine if you had an officer involved shooting and your officer is under the influence of marijuana? That would be throwing tax dollars away. The public may not know this, but Youngblood said that the Ridgecrest said that the Ridgecrest and Kern County Valley stations uh, now have a combined because of a staffing issue, not enough officers. Of the 22 available positions in the substation, seven are vacant. Now to marijuana grows. Youngblood said that the common knowledge, in, I'm sorry, Youngblood said that it is common knowledge that the entire Kern County is made up of marijuana grows, said Youngblood. Rosemont had 13 or 14. We closed them all down. Now they have 15 or 16. The irony is that with some of the dispensaries that the sheriff closed down, another delivery truck will show up during the closure, said Youngblood. With the with one internet casino, we closed them down, took their drugs, took their cash, and when another truck showed up with a delivery, we took that too. The reality of the situation that dispensary owners are cited and given a promise to appear, but Youngblood said that some of those promises to appear come 30 to 35 times. We can't make them pinky swear that they will appear. Where we are at is we don't hold people accountable in California for their actions. Today, we are turning everybody loose. According to Youngblood, 175,000 inmates were held in state prisons within California five years ago. Now, listen to this quote. Said Youngblood, you don't go to state prison for possession of marijuana. You don't go to state prison for murdering the first, uh, for murdering the first three or four times. You really have to be an overachiever to go to state prison. You are a bad person. Either that or you learned your lesson and you're not going back. Otherwise, state prisons are known for the revolving doors. Said Youngblood, today there are 92,000 inmates in state prison and Governor Newsom is allowing them to be released uh, after spending about half of their time in custody. I thought this was a really interesting article that was shared by one of, uh, one of our t team members. I, I would love to hear what people think about these quotes. Um, I think it's important to note also for people who aren't super familiar with law enforcement, a sheriff is an elected position, unlike a, uh, 
police chief that's uh, appointed by the mayor. So they have uh, much more powers than a, than a chief of police. Um, my name is Chris Eggers, and I'm a correspondent for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thanks for letting me report. My question is, would we have as many officer-involved shootings if they were allowed to uh, consume cannabis on their free time? No, we would not. There is, um, it, it's such, it's, it's so crazy. You know, you could go home off after work, down a bottle of wine or two, come to work hungover under the effects of, uh, of alcohol in the form of a hangover. No one will bat an eye. Uh, but if you, you know, take a gummy or smoke a joint at night, you know, you're going to get fired. It's ridiculous. Mike Tyson would name that alcohol wife beater whiskey. Come on now. Oof. Yeah. People would buy that. Pass out vodka. All right, we're at (laughs) the end of the line. Shout out to Cannabumps for that story. And up next, you may not be a Superman fan, but but would you rethink that if you knew that Clark Kent smoked weed? Our next correspondent does in real life. And his name is not Clark, it's Christopher. That's right. He's a communications specialist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Up next, we've got Christopher Smith. What you got for us this morning, Superman? Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that great introduction, Rico. Good morning to our fearless leader, Susan Soares. My story today is from the Lake Geneva Regional News, which I read every single morning. It's from America's Dairyland, the Badger State, home of the Cheeseheads and the big fat football liar Aaron Rodgers, the great state of Wisconsin. Last week, our friend Eric Hislereta reported on how Wisconsin State Senate Republicans blocked a bill put forward by a Democratic senator to force a vote to legalize cannabis. Senator Agar, the Democrat, was has introduced a bill to legalize REC in each of the last five legislative ses- sessions. She has 40 co-authors and co-sponsors, and guess what? They're all Democrats in a very Republican legislature. But since Republican le- uh, Wisconsin Republicans are all about winning, even if it means lying to the NFL about your vaccination status or trying to steal a presidential election, they lost by submitting fraudulent documents by fraudulent electors to the federal government. Let's see you in prison. Let's see what the Republicans have won for the state of Wisconsin by blocking cannabis legalization. In my headline today, while Wisconsin legislature considers medical marijuana, neighboring states reap the rewards. Neighboring states of Illinois and Michigan have legalized cannabis, so they're pretty good weather vanes to see which way the wind is blowing in the upper Midwest. Illinois cannabis sales in the last two years have been $2 billion, with 20% coming from out of state, filling state coffers with $500 million in tax revenue. Senator Agard says, when I look at the dispensary parking lots in South Beloit, I see 90% or more Wisconsin license plates. And how many of those tax dollars have Republicans won for Wisconsin? Zero. Illinois also reports that more than 16,000 cannabis jobs, according to the Leafly Jobs Report. And how many cannabis jobs have Republicans won for Wisconsin workers? Zero. Those jobs would reduce Wisconsin's unemployment rate by 18%, by the way, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Michigan's UP, that's Upper Peninsula, I learned from Priscilla last week, also borders Wisconsin on the north. The state of Michigan has sold just south of $1 billion in cannabis, collected about $250 million in tax revenue. How much tax revenue has been won for Republicans uh, for Wisconsin? Zero. In the workforce, Michigan doubled its cannabis workforce in 2020 during the height of the pandemic to 18,000 cannabis jobs. There are more cannabis workers than cops now, according to Leafly. And how many of those 18,000 jobs went to Wisconsin? Zero. Well done, Wisconsin Republicans. You're winning indeed. But there's one thing you can get for cannabis in Wisconsin, a felony. No so, comment, Jason. so yeah, I mean, so would one think that if you see that you are right in the middle of two different states that have legalized, that you would then look at this from a, you know, from your constituents that are in the state they want it, and that you have this opportunity to bring in this new tax revenue? I just think sometimes the the politics in our country is just so, you know, we we don't think like just common sense. Just it's ridiculous. They might also be looking at the states where they are getting the tax revenue and, you know, like we were just talking about a moment ago, the the market is um, severely imbalanced and that tax revenue then has to go back towards law enforcement. 
speaking of law enforcement, I'm wondering if they're hanging out and following people across the border. And if there's anyone with boots on the ground, we'd love to hear from you. It's wild how you could be in one place, like just crossing some basic arbitrary line and go from like misdemeanor to felony with what you're doing. Yeah, Liz, they're definitely not arbitrary lines. And um, everyone should know that if you ever saw blow, because the judge actually mentioned that in the sentencing. You took the words out of my mouth, Jason. Great movie. Great quote. Get out of my mouth. What happened with Blow? I mean, I saw Blow. I missed. I must have missed that it part. It was at the end when he was getting sentenced, and he was trying to say all I did was was uh, bring bring the stuff uh, across on a, on an arbitrary yeah. line, and then the judge said, "No, those arbitrary lines are real lines," and 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 then enforced the law. Yeah, I do remember that. I I remember a lot, but I do think um, I'm, I mean I am going to push back on tax revenue all going towards law enforcement. I think that's the you know I think there's a percentage that goes towards law enforcement and that's the reality of it. But there's a lot of tax revenue that that state is missing out on that they should look at. Like why allow your, your citizens, I mean, you know, your constituents to leave to go get their cannabis when you can create an infrastructure. Absolutely. Hey, New Jersey's doing it too. All right. We're at the end of time for that one and, and bringing us home. He is the CEO of the deliciously vegan and kosher edible brand fruit, fruit slabs. But don't get hypnotized by the sexy signature beard. He's also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney with an all-star client list and the experience on deck to sue your ass if you slip up. Repping Long Beach Heavy, up next is Brandon Dorsky. What flavor news slabs you got for us today, my man? Uh, my flavor of news is NFL tinged. It's ex-NFL teammates get Potco's fraud suit trimmed, as reported by Law 360. We're talking about former Falcon Julio Jones and current Falcon Roddy White have partly beaten claims that they defrauded a cultivator, Genetics LLC, on a L.A. cannabis cultivation that was looted. Judge Mel Ricana dismissed 8 out of 10 accounts against the players, but did give Genetics the opportunity to amend 6 of the 10 counts. The judge sustained Jones and White's demurs for Genetics' claims of unjust enrichment and injunctive relief without leave to amend, but denied their dismissal request for conversion and accounting claims. Two other counts remain in the case against other defendants, which include Lamar House, Genetics' chairman, Dodd Sherrills, which is House's cousin, Wright Lab, the Van Beek's company, and Wolfgang and Associates LLC, a company owned by Tyrone Freeman. There's a lot going on in this case. Genetics sued Jones and White, alleging the players gave their blessing to an illegal grow operation that allowed father and son management duo Wright Lab, the Van Beek's company, to squat on a 22,000 square foot facility. Genetics argued that Jones and White, along with the Van Beeks, continued to operate a black market illegal operation, literally through a hole cut in the wall at the Genetics facility. The NFL players memo in their case, filed in support of their demur request, claimed the lawsuit is, quote, nothing more than the most recent maneuver in a fraudulent scheme. The allegations in the complaint are nothing but conclusory undifferentiated kitchen sink accusations lumped against six or more defendants purporting to support baseless fraud and intentional misconduct claims. This suit came after a separate suit had been filed by the NFL players that alleged some of the cultivation partners would not submit to live scan background checks. So there's a lot of finger pointing going on here. And that suit claimed that genetics chairman Lamar House had cut access to the metric system the software that we use with licensed cannabis businesses to report activity, uh, and that he also invoked his relationship with the Black Panthers to threaten John Van Beek's life. According to Genetics' complaint, Van Beek allegedly sold between 400 to 2,000 pounds of cannabis illegally and refused to cede the facility to the new management, and that the NFL players had colluded on that behavior. Genetics claimed that they warned the state on May 5th that the facility was not properly labeling packaging or applying metric tracking tags. The NFL player's suit claims that that May 5th warning was actually for a different reason, and it was about the failure of some of the parties to comply with background checks because they would have failed because one of the partners was convicted of embezzling tens of thousands of dollars, and another partner pled guilty to federal heroin distribution conspiracy in 2009. This is ongoing. The cases might be consolidated. Uh, there's a hearing at the end of the month to determine if that will happen. Stay tuned for more because I will report on it. This is um, Brandon Dorsky from the State uh, of Cannabis. Brandon, can we start a Cannabis Darwin Awards? 
Oh my God, that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Thank you to Rico and Liz for helping me co-mod the show today. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears. When there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour, news you can trust. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye, Rico. Goodbye, Rico. <laughs> <laughs>